Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number nine, the book of Amos, chapters five and six. Well, when we read the Bible, especially when we read the prophets, we're kind of faced with a choice of perspective. To think of these scriptures as perhaps an uh, interesting, not particularly relevant history lesson concerning ancient Israel, or we can think of them as a divine record of how God has always decided and behaved, revealing His immutable principles and, and patterns, and therefore it is and it will always be greatly relevant. Because He decides and He behaves the same way in all generations, including ours. Those of His modern-day worshipers. Now, I certainly hope that you accept as I do that the latter and not the former is the case. Now, in our previous lesson as we studied Amos chapter 5, we looked on as Amos prophesied that as a result of Israel's rebellion against their covenant with Him, God would reformulate His relationship with them from acting as their protector to acting as their adversary. This was not an idle warning, it wasn't a hypothetical threat, as through Amos God explains just what this new relationship with Israel is going to look like, what it means for them. And it means, first and foremost, that God is going to entice a powerful nation to invade and decimate Israel, that nation acting as His hand of punishment for His chosen people's unfaithfulness. And while the promised invasion is perhaps a few years off, it is coming at God's direction, so it is irreversible, it is not stoppable. Therefore, Amos urgently warns the people to prepare first by repenting. Second, by arranging their lives and their affairs to protect themselves against the inevitable disaster that is coming. Further, God explains that He has already pulled His blessings away from Ephraim Israel. It's only that the leadership of the people are oblivious to it, primarily because Israel continues as a wealthy, a powerful, and important country in the region. And as the people look around them, reveling in their power, their prosperity, patting themselves on their backs for all their successes, they assume their lofty and envious position exists because they've done it themselves. They've done it themselves. But it also indicates that God must be pleased with their lifestyles, pleased with their worship of Him. But they're deceived. Rather, says the Lord in verse 17, He's going to pass through Israel. He's using the same words He promised to Moses that He would pass through Egypt to kill all the firstborn of humans and livestock. Now we know from history that God did exactly as He said He would do to Ephraim Israel. Only in the 21st century, after the passing of 2700 years, are the remnants of the destruction of the ten tribes of Ephraim Israel finally being beckoned from heaven to return to their ancient homeland, from the far-flung places they were sent. Now believers, there is something far more personal and relevant in Amos' words to us, which we are meant to take to heart, than a history lesson. A history lesson about the fallen northern kingdom of Israel. It's an ominous, ominous reminder that God 
with sufficient provocation and with enough reckless faithfulness towards Him, will not only pull His hand of blessing and protection from His elect, He will also reverse our redemption. The church rightly has for hundreds of years drawn the close parallel between Israel's redemption from Egypt and our redemption from sin and oppression. And while we usually speak of that redemption as being unconditional, that statement's too broad. It's too broad. And it can leave us spiritually exposed. Israel, too, thought their redemption had been unconditional. And that the consequences for that grave error, that's what we've been reading about. See, there is a condition to our salvation. For ancient Israel, they had to trust in Jehovah, and the proof of their trust was to paint the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their Egyptian homes. And for the past 2,000 years, it is that we must first sincerely trust in the blood of Yeshua the Messiah to receive our salvation. But there's another and even larger question that looms. Is there an ongoing condition that after we first trust, are there no further requirements of us? You know, when we look a bit closer at the New Testament, what we actually find is it is that God's love for us is what is unconditional, not our salvation. Those same verses explain that God's love is for all mankind, not just His elect. So God's love is by no means the indicator or result of our personal redemption any more than it was for Israel. God continued to love Israel, even as He was in process of reversing their salvation history, using the Assyrian Empire war machine to destroy 90% of the Ephraim Israelite people, and exiling the remaining living from their Promised Land. Now, while gaining our salvation is without condition except for the condition of trusting Jesus for it, maintaining our salvation, well, that's another matter. We must consciously and with purpose hold on to our redemption once given by remaining faithful, by remaining obedient to God, because in that, is revealed our level of trust or lack of it for Him. Something that if real and true in our minds and lives shows up as the good fruit we are to bear as we continue to glorify Him. However, should we go in a different direction and eventually cross some cosmic line in the sand of too much unfaithfulness, too much disobedience and rebellion, and the de facto end, really, of our trust in God, He will rescind our redemption. Because that trust in Him that we once had has become a farce, becomes worthless. In the book of Hebrews, the anonymous writer was inspired to warn believers of exactly this situation, of the folly of thinking that we can make a good show of it for a time by claiming trust in God's Son for redemption, or even actually sincerely believing at first, but then later on pulling away from that trust, living in sin, and yet still expecting God's grace to remain upon us. Listen to Hebrews 10. 22 through 29. Therefore, let us approach the holiest place with a sincere heart, in the full assurance that comes from trusting, with our hearts sprinkled clean from a bad conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us continue holding fast to the hope we hope we acknowledge without wavering. 
for the one who made that promise is trustworthy. Let us keep paying attention to one another in order to spur each other on to love and good deeds, not neglecting our own congregational meetings, as some have made a practice of doing, but rather encouraging each other. Let us do this all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we deliberately continue to sin after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice of sins, but only the terrifying prospect of judgment, of raging fire that will consume the enemies. Someone who disregards the Torah of Moses is put to death without mercy on the word of two or three witnesses. Think how much worse will be the punishment deserved by someone who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has treated as something common the blood of the covenant which made him holy, and who has insulted the Spirit, giver of God's grace. Folks, that's powerful, and it's plain, and it's obvious. So here, please, that series of conditional words of our salvation found in this passage. Sincere, not flippant or casual faith. Continue to hold fast. Not hold fast initially for a little while, but no longer. Keep paying attention to one another, not loving your neighbor with good deeds at first, only to grow disinterested later. Knowing the truth and wrongly continuing to sin. We can't claim God and redemption and then knowingly just do wrong. If we don't follow this urgent pleading, what's the result? There no longer remains the effect of the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of us for our sins that we may escape eternal punishment. Instead, we will certainly face terrifying judgment. That's what we just read. So the thrust of this message was brought to Israel by a number of prophets, rejected by most of the leadership and the people. And we are right now reading about the consequences of that. All right, open your Bibles to Amos chapter 5. Follow along with me. Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, we're going to read from verse 18 to the end. 18 to the end. I really, really want you to pay attention to these first two or three three verses. Please, hear what it says. Because I'm going to tell you right now, it flies in the face of a lot we've heard if you're an evangelical Christian over the last 30, 40 years of our life. Hear this. Woe to you who want the day of Adonai. Why do you want it? The day of Adonai, the day of the Lord. It's darkness, it's not light. As if someone were to run from a lion just to be met by a bear. As if he entered a house, put his hand on the wall just to be bitten by a snake. Won't the day of the Lord, the day of Adonai, be darkness and not light? Completely dark with no brightness at all? I hate, I utterly loathe your festivals. I take no pleasure in your solemn assemblies. If you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them, nor will I accept the peace offerings of your stall-fed cattle. Spare me the noise of your songs. I don't want to hear the strumming of your lutes. Instead, let justice well up like water, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings in the desert 40 years, house of Israel? No, but now you will bear Sukkot as your king and Kiyun your images, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. So I exile you beyond Damasek, beyond Damascus, says Adonai Elohei Sevaot. That is his name. What did you hear there? You know, it's interesting. Amos is the first to use the term the day of the Lord. 
And what it really says, though, is in the original Hebrew, the day of Yehovah. Keep that in mind as we continue. And the context of its use is woe to those who want it. In other words, are you kidding me? Who would want this? Why would you want this? Because it's going to be a day of darkness, not light. And with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, I've asked this question of you Torah class students in some earlier books, Bible book studies. Why are you so anxious for that day? Why do you raise your hands to heaven and ask that it not be delayed? Why do you do that? I do understand that most believers, at least those of the more evangelical branches of Christianity, think of the day of the Lord primarily in regards to the return of Christ and ridding the world of evil. I get that. But I also suggest that most don't fully think out what that event is actually going to look like. The few years that are going to lead up to the day of the Lord are going to be the darkest of times. Beyond our current ability to even imagine it. More than the world has ever known. The day of the Lord is about judgment, people. It's not about joy. The divine judgment that brings to an end the mass cruelty of the Antichrist and other evil tyrants is going to be even more terrible. The collateral damage will be staggering. The price humanity is going to pay for there to finally be a lasting peace on earth and goodwill to all men is beyond our comprehension. Billions, yeah, that's with a B. Billions of people are going to die. Billions more are going to suffer. So what did the day of the Lord mean to Amos? What mental image was formed within the minds of the people who first heard those prophetic words? Because within that meaning and mental image is generally how we're to understand it. All these centuries later, acknowledging that with the passing of history, we now have more information about it than those of Amos's day. Now, there's probably a half dozen rather nuanced opinions of its exact meaning that are subscribed to throughout the world of theology. It is noted that in Middle and Near East cultures existing well before the time of Israel, there was a belief of a coming cosmic catastrophe that would eventually befall the earth. Von Rod posited that a calamitous holy war was the context for the day of the Lord. Another commonly held opinion is that the day of the Lord has to do with an appearance of God, a theophany. There are others. However, I think what we can say without venturing too far out on a limb is that the day of the Lord does not point us towards a day, meaning a single 24-hour period. It's not what we're talking about here. Just one day of great devastation, but rather it points towards a period of time, an undefined period of time. Somewhere during that period of time, the Lord will make an appearance in order to rescue His own and to bring judgment, destruction, upon His enemies. Who are His enemies? All those that He determines do not hold a sincere trust in Yeshua for their salvation. That's His enemies. Now, for Amos, for the people of Israel, all twelve tribes, talking about here. This would have been envisioned as God coming to take revenge on Israel's enemies. And through that, 
bring full and final salvation, redemption, if you would, to the family of Jacob. In other words, the bad stuff's coming, but not for us. So Amos has acknowledged that indeed a period of planet-wide divine judgment is coming. However, Israel has deceived itself into thinking that they're going to be immune from it. That is, this judgment is for Israel's benefit. It's all about propelling the well-deserving nation of Israel into a golden era of national prominence above all other nations on earth. They were wrong to think it. And we are wrong to think that we as believers are going to be held harmless to the coming horrors associated with the day of the Lord. So verse 18 says, Woe! Woe! Not to the pagan nations, but rather to those, Israel, who ignorantly yearn for this day, the day of the Lord. In this case, at this moment, this is specifically about the northern kingdom. Amos has just popped a balloon of popular doctrine that the people of Ephraim had embraced and they were relying on it as a given. You can imagine that it was not at all well received. It would take a prophet of great courage and dedication like Amos to deliver this message of doom to a people who honestly believed that they had elevated themselves spiritually to such heights of great piousness before God, it made them untouchable. As Shalom M. Paul puts it, Amos says that past salvation is not an unlimited guarantee for future life insurance. Israel is going to experience the reverse of everything they expected. The day of the Lord for them will be darkness. It will not be light. Death, destruction, not salvation. Verse 19 uses a literary simile to emphasize the point that's being made. Just like a person frantically runs away from a lion, but right into the bears of a jaw. <laughs> bears of a jaw, I love that. Right into the jaws of a bear. Or like a person who runs inside their home to get away from danger, only to be met by a poisonous snake in their house. So will Israel think that Jehovah will provide a means of escape from what others are suffering, only to find out there isn't. Verse 20. Verse 20 seeks to erase even the faintest hopes for their survival. The darkness of that day will be total darkness, not partial. No light whatsoever, not even a glimmer will be seen. Again, this calls to mind the same sort of phenomena that happened to the Egyptians in order to redeem Israel in the first place. Only now, the same darkness is going to happen to Israel as a sign of the reversal of their salvation history to unredeem them. Exodus 10, 20-23 But Adonai made Pharaoh hard-hearted, and he wouldn't let the people of Israel go. And Adonai said to Moshe, to Moses, Reach out your hand towards the sky, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness so thick it can be felt. Moses reached out his hand towards the sky, and there was a thick darkness in the entire land of Egypt for three days. People couldn't see each other. No one went anywhere for three days, but all the people of Israel had light in their homes. Note how in Egypt the darkness was so total you couldn't even see the person standing right next to you. But the Israelites did have light in their homes. The people of Ephraim Israel expected the same thing to happen on the day of the Lord. They would receive the Lord's favor. But no, says Amos, you won't. This time Israel will experience that same 
darkness. That same darkness that the Egyptians felt because, just like for the Egyptians, God is now going to treat Israel as his adversaries. Well, the final seven verses of chapter 5 revolve around this principle. Religious ritual does not save. Even more religious ritual that is void of morality makes God performing them reject them. What is proper morality as regards ritual? We have to go to God's code of morality, the Law of Moses, to know the answer to that. For Ephraim Israel, their religious ritual was not moral because it did not follow the ritual practices and conditions as set down in the Law of Moses. The Northern Kingdom had reworked some pagan rituals to suit them. And they substituted those rituals for the ones God had ordained on Mount Sinai. Even the place of the rituals, and was only to be at the temple in Jerusalem, was wrong because Ephraim Israel had created their own cult worship sites. You know, I recall some years ago when talking to a friend about my doubts and concerns over Christian Easter and Christmas observances, due to the bulk of those observances clearly being of pagan origin, she told me not to be concerned because Jesus had baptized them. That is, the very things that were used for pagan ritual, acknowledged that they were, were now deemed by the church as okay to use to worship God because Jesus had cleansed them and now made them suitable. I have no doubt it was with this same kind of misguided logic that Ephraim Israel borrowed so many of their worship practices from their pagan neighbors and felt fully justified and using them to worship Jehovah God of Israel, even though the Law of Moses warned them not to. In verse 21, God goes so far as to say He hates and despises their festivals. While hates and despises is not a wrong translation, a better and more apt one is that God hates and rejects their feasts. That is, because while our knee-jerk reaction is to take the term hate into one of a very in, in, uh, an intense emotional dislike. That's not the case here. Biblically, hate is the opposite of love. And far more often than not, biblically speaking, love is meant in the sense of allegiance and faithfulness. Not a, it's not about emotional warm affections. Therefore, to hate is to reverse allegiance. To hate is to refuse or, or, or even to dissolve allegiance. Thus to hate involves rejection of the hated person, and rejection is the better translation for the Hebrew word used here, which is ma'ach. In fact, says God, He also hates, He rejects all of their solemn assemblies. No doubt meaning assemblies other than the annual feasts, such as perhaps special occasions of communal worship. And by the way, don't think of those occasions of, of communal worship in terms of church-like or synagogue-like weekly meetings. Because get this, there is no evidence within the Bible, nor from other ancient Jewish sources, that weekly assembles, assemblies ever occurred in Israel's history, until well after Judah's return from their Babylonian exile. Never happened. In verse 22, God essentially rejects all of Ephraim's sacrificial offerings. Specifically, He calls out the three most frequent ones, the Ola, the Mecha, and the Shlamim. Now, commonly called the bird offering, the grain offering, and, and, and the peace offering, the first two are usually performed together and they're about atoning for sins. 
The third one, the peace offering, is a voluntary offering that can involve the making of vows or can just simply be an offering of, of thanksgiving. Thus God is saying He won't accept any required offerings, He will not accept any voluntary offerings, which together covers all possible reasons for sacrificing. Why? Because they can say they're sacrificing to Him, but they're doing it within an illegal worship system, which means they're disobeying His laws and His commandments. You know, it seems that whether it is the most ancient Hebrew, the early Israelite, Judaism, or the Christian faith, we have a penchant for insisting on doing things our way. Our way. And being equally insistent that God accept our worship any way we want to give it to Him. And this belief is desperately held on to despite example after example after example in the Bible of God's harsh reaction to those who attempt it. It never works out. Being sincere when what we're doing is morally wrong in God's eyes makes it no less wrong and unacceptable. Once again, this particular reaction of God towards Israel's perverted worship practice is called for in the Law of Moses. So God is only executing the terms of the covenant to which He and Israel mutually agreed. Leviticus 26, 26-31, I will cut off your supply of bread so that ten women will bake your bread in one oven and dole out your bread by weight, and you will eat but not be satisfied. <coughs> And if for all this you still will not listen to me, but you go against me, then I will go against you furiously. And I also will chastise you yet seven times more for your sins. You will eat the flesh of your own sons, you will eat the flesh of your own daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your pillars for sun worship, throw your carcasses on the carcasses of your idols, and I will detest you. I will lay waste to your cities, make your sanctuaries desolate, so as not to smell your fragrant aromas." In other words, not to smell the smoke of those sacrifices. So verse 23 now focuses on the songs and the music used in the process of worshiping God. So He not only rejects their sacrifices and their feasts, but also even the praise they offer up to Him in the form of music. So. Is it the choice of music and the, the words of the songs that make it unacceptable? We're not told so. Now, I, I suspect that the point being made is that every form of praise and worship of God is no longer acceptable to Him because the people who are attempting it do not have righteous hearts. So they don't live righteous lives and their motives and their spiritual condition make them as outcasts to Him. They can call on His name night and day, but without a sincere, God-prescribed righteousness, it's all for naught. Fellow believers, do you seriously think that has changed because of the advent of Yeshua? Really? I mean, can we intentionally go on sinning, living an unrighteous life, bearing an unrighteous heart, and still expect God to accept us? Romans 6 1. So then are we to say, well, let's keep on sinning so that we can have more grace? Heaven forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Not living righteously, that is, still sinning is anathema to our relationship with God. What's the remedy for unacceptable worship? God tells us in Amos 5.24. Instead, He says, instead of all that, let justice well up like water, and righteousness flow like an ever-flowing stream. That's the remedy. 
See, this is the same thought that the prophet Samuel uttered to a sinful king Saul nearly three centuries earlier. 1 Samuel 15.22, Shmuel, Samuel, said, Does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying what Adonai says? Surely obeying is better than sacrifice and heeding orders than the fat of rams. Look, ritual is good when it's God-ordained and it's performed by righteous people with the right motivations. But even God-ordained ritual observances are useless if not done with a contrite and righteous heart. Verse 25 is God asking Israel to recall their own history, specifically their wilderness experience. During that 40 years in the wilderness, sacrifices could not and were not done every day exactly as prescribed. So much of the sacrificial system looked ahead in time to when Israel was settled in the Promised Land. For instance, when Israel was on the move, there was simply no feasible way to pause, set up the tabernacle and altar, and then sacrifice daily. It was impossible. So, Jehovah is reminding Israel that while the prescribed sacrifice and rituals are good, yet His extreme and vigilant care for them was not based on those rituals. It was based on God's grace in exchange for their sincere trust and faithfulness in Him. Now I'm going to get a bit preachy for a minute. I'm going to ask up front for your forgiveness for my frankness. The idea within Roman Christianity, and Roman Christianity, by the way, represents virtually all branches, all of Western Christianity, that it was with the advent of Jesus whereupon grace entered this world and became the basis of God's relationship with humans, this is absurd and it's ignorant. God's relationship with humanity was always about His grace. Always. It has never changed. Even Israel's redemption from Egypt was God's act of grace. I mean, Israel had done nothing to deserve it, nor did they work to make it happen. The Law of Moses was yet another act of grace. Especially was the sacrificial system based on God's grace. God agreed to allow a guilty human to be forgiven for his or her sins by means of one of God's innocent animal creatures being slaughtered and burned up in the guilty person's stead. Is that not grace? So God is saying to Israel in verse 25, Hey, hey, when did you get the idea that sacrifice and ritual were what I want most from you? Perhaps, perhaps, the time of the most intimacy between God and Israel was during that wilderness journey, when Israel was 100% dependent upon God and they knew it. Yes, they certainly failed from time to time and they got punished for it, but they knew who to turn to. They knew whose commandments to follow and what happened when they didn't. Even before Israel left Egypt, God had given instructions to Israel's elders. We find that in Jeremiah 7, 21-24. Thus says Adonai Sebaot, the God of Israel, You may as well eat the meat of your burnt offerings along with that of your sacrifices, for I didn't speak to your ancestors or give them orders concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Act rather what I did order them was this pay attention to what I say. Then I'll be your God and you will be my people. In everything 
Live according to the way that I order you, so that things will go well with you. But they neither listened nor did they pay attention. But they lived according to their own plans, in the stubbornness of their own evil hearts, thus going backward, not forward. The Hebrews living in Egypt under oppression from the Pharaoh still did not obey God. No amount of ritual, no amount of sacrifice was even ordered at that time. Only their obedience to the ways, the righteous ways, the morality that God showed to them. And yet, here stands Israel, Ephraim Israel, in the Promised Land, a land just dripping with abundance, and Israel a wealthy nation. All of it because of God's grace. A land God is about to take back from them because their hearts grew evil, their souls dark, their minds arrogant. They invented their own doctrines. They created their own worship practices, and they still expected God to accept them. Verse 26 describes Israel carrying around a couple of pagan idols, which of itself is a complete repudiation of their claim of loyalty to Jehovah. So after social injustice has been addressed, as well as the decadent living of Israel's elite and their, their disdain and oppression of the working poor, now God's complaint against them turns back to idolatry. These two named pagan deities were astral deities, both of which have long histories behind them. Sukut, also called Sakut, and Kiun, were long part of the various ancient Mesopotamian religions. So what is being talked about is a great religious procession, a parade, if you would, a religious parade, that the Ephraim Israelites copied from their pagan neighbors, even using their pagan star deities, whose images they carried in the procession and dedicated it all to Jehovah. For all these offenses against God and more, verse 17 pronounces judgment. All the false things that Israel had relied upon to support their false man-made religion would prove to have been worth nothing. God is essentially telling Israel, go ahead, go ahead, hang on to those two deities. Take them along with you when you go into exile. Let's move on to Amos chapter 6. Put your Bibles out, we're going to read Amos chapter 6. Amos chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Woe to those living at ease in Zion, to those who feel complacent, complacent uh, on the hills of Shomron, Samaria. Renowned men in this foremost of nations, to whom the rest of Israel come, travel to and see, from there go on to Hamat, the great, then go down to Gat of the Philistine. Are you better than those kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yours? You put off all thought of the evil day, but hasten the reign of violence. You lie on beds of ivory, and lounge sprawled out on your couches, dining on meat from lambs in the flock, and from calves fattened in stalls. You make up wild songs at your parties, playing the lute, inventing other instruments, imagining that you're like David. You drink wine by the boilful, bowlful. You anoint yourselves with the finest oils. You feel no grief at the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, for now they will be the first, the first to go into exile, with those being exiled. And the revelry of those who lounged, sprawling, will pass away. Adonai Elohim swears by himself. Says Adonai Elohei Sefaot, I detest that Jacob is so proud. I hate his palaces. I will hand over the city along with everything in it. And when that day comes, if ten men remain in one house, they will die. 
And if a dead man's uncle coming to bring the corpse out of the house and burn it finds a survivor hidden in the inmost recesses of the house and asks, is anyone else with you? Then when he receives the answer, no, he will say, don't say anymore. Because we mustn't mention the name of Adonai. For when Adonai gives the order, great houses will be shattered, small houses reduced to rubble. Do horses run on rock? Does one plow there with oxen? Yet you've turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into bitter wormwood. Yet you take pleasure in worthless things. You think your power comes from your own strength. But I will raise up a nation against you, house of Israel, says Adonai Elohim Sefaot, and they will oppress you from the entrance of Amat to the wadi of the Arabah. Now, interestingly, Amos now includes Judah in this prophecy against Ephraim when he speaks of Zion. So this oracle is directed for now at the entire family of Jacob, all the tribes. And even more specifically, this woe is against those described as at ease and complacent. These folks feel confident. They feel oh so secure in their wealth and in the defenses they have prepared against any eventuality. Now, the second half of verse 1 is a bit difficult to translate, and so a few different attempts have been made. And while they're all generally in agreement as to the substance, it still requires some guesses as to the meaning of the expressions that are being used to describe these notables of Israel. See, now, one of the things we have to realize is that even though tribalism was in full swing at this time, nonetheless the capital cities of Jerusalem and Samaria were administered outside the usual manner that tribes were, since these were the centers of political power. Then wealth was of course attracted to it. Everyone wanted some type of relationship or connection to the monarchy. That connection could come via marriage, maybe by birth, or for all but the very privileged few, it could be because of employment by the monarchy or simply living nearest to the king in his court. Living near to the king was always reserved for the wealthiest. These notables then had the king's ear. They had access. They were also given special privileges, power that only the monarchy could bestow upon them. Some were given the power to tax the people, to control very profitable national building projects. Therefore, it was the common citizens, the common citizens, the house of Israel it's called here, that came to those notables when they needed government help or they needed justice. So it is this elite group, the notables of both Judah and Israel, that verse 1 is addressing. Now in verse 2, a comparison is drawn between Israel and three Gentile nations, Kalne, Hamat, and Gath. Now, the oracle asks a rhetorical question, whose answer is no. And the question is this, are you, Israel, any better than those nations? And even though Israel would instinctively answer, yeah, yes, sure we are, as they thought themselves the cream of the crop and the all-important, God makes it clear that He sees them as no better than those three pagan city-states. And at this time in history, Kalne and Hamath were actually under the control of Ephraim Israel. One of the, and Gath which is one of the five major Philistine cities, was under Judah's control. So part of the point of choosing those three cities for comparison 
includes the idea that these are all subjugated cities. They had all been invaded, lost their freedom, just as Samaria will soon be invaded and overrun, and then Jerusalem, several decades later, will too. The other point being made is that nations and kingdoms may think they have priority before God, Israel included, but like Israel, they have badly assessed their situation. Verse 3 continues to speak to the elite of Israel. Putting far off that evil day means these folks push away, they deny any thought that such a thing as terrible as what Amos is proposing could actually ever actually happen to them. They simply continue their decadence and their immorality, believing they cannot be touched. Yet, it is that same attitude that causes the coming violence only to accelerate, for their wealth and their position to be dashed to pieces even sooner than it might have been. Let's put it another way. It is the leaders and the elite of Ephraim Israel who are fully responsible for bringing about the calamity that is about to befall them all. And I dare say, that is the case nearly every time a nation or a kingdom falls. Incompetent and arrogant leaders are certain that their wealth and power will insulate them from whatever the result is of their folly. See, there's nothing new under the sun in this. The next three verses are a somewhat detailed list of the decadent behaviors of those notable elite who harbor no thought, no thought that they could ever lose what they have. Verse 4 paints them as basically lazy. Leisure is their preferred way of life, and it is how they spend the bulk of their time. The beds of ivory were expensively crafted wood inlaid with ornate ivory, and were not beds as we think of them today, by the way, like with mattresses, but rather we would call them couches. These wealthy dine on nothing but the finest. They eat meat daily, lamb or beef. Even then, these are the choicest of the sheep and the cattle that they use for their meat source. Most Israelites could not imagine such a thing. Eating meat for them was well beyond them. Most of the animal protein they consumed was fish. Sheep and cattle were for sacrificing. And so, many of them probably only ate meat as a direct result of attending one or another of the pilgrimage festivals. Matzah, Shavuot, Sukkot, and offering a sheep or a cow as a sacrifice. The first feast occurs in the springtime, the second in the summer, the last is in, in the fall. So eating meat was pretty infrequent for them. Mentioning the regular eating of meat by the elite is meant then to point out the lavish the excessive lifestyle they led, in contrast to the meager diet of the average Israelite family. Okay, we're going to stop here for today, and we will continue in Amos chapter 6 next time.